Welcome to tonight's edition of the One Hood Power Hour. I am your co-host, Kahari Mosley, joined by my uh, esteemed colleagues, Ryan White and Miracle Jones. And we have another uh, great episode uh, tonight. Uh, we are going to be uh, talking about how restorative justice keeps communities safe. And we have two uh, great guests, Kempis Ghani Songster and Terrell Williams, uh, will be joining us uh, later in the hour uh, to talk about the work that they do, uh, engaging young people and keeping young people safe and helping young people navigate uh, the many obstacles uh, they face uh, between their lives and safety uh, here in Pittsburgh and which is mirrors many of the challenges young people face, not only here, but but around the country. But before we get into that, let's start uh, with our quick takes. We'll start with Miracle and uh, go around around the horn, as they say in, in, in baseball. Uh, well, I know it's a very interesting, you know, moment for baseball as, you know, Pittsburgh Pirates are um, playing. Well, I, I mean, they're playing. I don't know the, the facts about the stats and all that, but I know they're playing. Um, and sports is back. It's still the finals. Um, I think the biggest thing right now here in Pittsburgh, there is the conversation about, you know, tomorrow city council will be voting on a proposal to um, either adopt, reject in whole or in part the proposed um, $335 million um, budget uh, for the American Rescue Plan. Um, there was a, a, a action today for community members who have um, argued that the budget for this year should be passed, but for the next uh, four years, that should be um, a longer, robust community-led conversation. So there is still some debate about whether or not that is going to um, happen in the next 24 hours. So there's going to be a, a lot of focus on, on city council right now. Um, it does look like the budget will pass. Um, as some elected officials have said that, you know, they're really, they don't really see um a need to delay the budget process because a lot of things can be addressed in the September uh, budget hearings. So we will hopefully um, know something in the next 24 hours. Um, and additionally, you know, the Delta variant is really making, is really making, um, I, I don't know, it's not a comeback, but it's really making a dent into a lot of things. There have been multiple um, athletes who have now dropped out of the Tokyo Olympics. That's supposed to start this weekend because they have caught COVID-19. Um, local people um, in Tokyo have been protesting to ban or, or delay the Olympics because of COVID-19 and other issues. And so we're really going to see even um, Biden did a presentation today. Um, we're still under the numbers for our vaccinations. COVID is rising. There are hot spots popping up from Florida to Missouri. And so we're really going to have to be looking at as we go back to school next month, what does it mean um, to, quote, unquote, return to normal during the midst of a global pandemic? And those some of the um, issues that are going on that have caught my eye today. 
Thank you for that miracle, Ryan. Yeah, thanks, Kahari. Um, and, and thanks, Miracle, for that as well. Um, and I'll, I'll touch on the Delta variant um, issue with COVID quickly as well. Um, just because, you know, um, you know, as vaccination numbers slow, um, there's, you know, there's still a lot of people out there who are unvaccinated. Um, and just, you know, because of how, how transmissible this Delta variant is, how contagious it is, um, you know, in, in relation to, to past strains of COVID, um, you know, it presents potentially a much greater threat um, than, than a lot of those strains did to the people who remain unvaccinated. Um, you know, I saw earlier today that L.A. County is is going back to a mandatory um, indoor mask mandate. And, you know, I think if if the vaccination numbers don't pick up again, I think that's something, you know, that as we move into flu season, um, you know, that we're really likely to see again. Um, you know, I've seen a couple top health officials talk about how just because of how, you know, how contagious, how transmissible this Delta variant is, um, you know, the, the idea of herd immunity, the idea that, you know, only, you know, a certain cusp of people need to get vaccinated to really stop the spread, um, you know, while it can still slow it down, as we've seen in, in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, where the Delta variant, you know, has yet to, at least at a documented level, yet to really spread um, substantially, um, you know, this concept of herd immunity or a certain vaccine threshold to really stop the spread of COVID, um, you know, isn't, isn't really attainable at this point um, with the Delta variant. So, you know, it's, it's really a scenario where, you know, if, if you don't get vaccinated at this point, you're, you're very highly likely to, to catch COVID in one way or another because of that Delta variant. Um, so it's, you know, it's definitely something important to, to keep our eyes on, especially again, move into the flu season as, as you know, things continue to be open for the most part with schools resuming um, and different things like that. Um, and then, you know, another situation I just wanted to talk about briefly um, is, you know, the, the ongoing strike and, and calls for boycotts of uh, Frito-Lay and PepsiCo products um, and that strike that's going on in Topeka, Kansas. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of reports, um, you know, coming out of the pandemic that, you know, a lot of anecdotal reports of, of labor shortages, you know, people aren't interested in, in working. They'd rather just take the stimulus or take unemployment and things like that. Um, and, you know, this is really just indicative of the trend that, um, you know, it's not, it's not that a labor shortage exists. Um, it's, it's more so that, you know, a lot of these companies such as Frito-Lay, such as, you know, PepsiCo, the parent company, just aren't willing to provide, um, you know, sufficient uh, wages um, and, and working conditions to really incentivize people to, to work, um, and, you know, and create that atmosphere where it's, where it's possible to do so. Um, you know, you see in that, in that factory in Topeka, it's been over five months since any of those people have had a day off. Um, in order to get a day off, they need to earn a certain number of points, which they only get from, you know, voluntarily doing what's called forced overtime Um you know, which extends their work week um, up to 84 hours a week. If they, you know, aren't willing to do this forced overtime work, um, they're deducted points, and that's, you know, why why they've been unable to get any amount of days off at all. Um, you know, it's, it's resulted to it's, – it's been really impactful on people's quality of lives, um, you know, and other issues like that. Um, and so it's, you know, it's just really important to draw attention to that and, you know, kind of dispel the notion that, you know, the, the, the issue here is that there's a labor shortage, you know, because that's not the case. If there was a widespread labor shortage, we would see, you know, wages rising in response to that. We would see working conditions improving in response to that. 
Um, and we haven't seen any of that at all. The, the real shortage here is just, you know, employers, uh, a shortage of employers who are, who are willing to provide competitive livable wages, um, you know, and, and sufficient working conditions to create, you know, a, a, an environment that's, that's safe and productive. For uh, thank you for that. Uh, I just have two quick things. Um, you know, one, a quick update on Senator uh, Doug Mastriano's, State Senator Doug Mastriano's efforts to have a Arizona style um, so-called audit uh, of the Pennsylvania election like they did in Arizona. And one of the interesting um, developments in, in this effort is that even the Republican uh, counties in Pennsylvania are refusing to provide access uh, to their voting machines. So uh, um, uh, Tioga County, um, which is a very a red county in Pennsylvania, um, said they would not allow uh, this organization to have access, as well as York County, uh, you know, which has a large, you know, Republican representation from that county as well. Um, so you see that not only uh, the blue counties in Pennsylvania are pushing back against efforts um, to provide what they call third-party access to the voting machines, which could, you know, ultimately just render uh, the voting machines unusable, unusual, unusable and would force the counties to uh, buy new voting machines, obviously costing taxpayers millions of dollars all over the state. Um, so I thought that was a very uh, you know, interesting um, development. And, and for those who will check out uh, our Sunday night sit down with, with Donna, Donna Joe Bullock uh, from the Philadelphia area, um, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll hear us talk a little bit uh, about um, uh, an artist who was very dear to me near and dear to me that passed away over the weekend and that's Biz Markey. Um, and, you, and if you tune in Sunday night, you'll hear us talk a little bit about Biz Markey, but I did want to also mention, uh, you know, Biz Markey's importance um, to hip hop culture, as you know, us in the, in the one hood family of organizations, um, you know, all come from a strong hip hop background. And, you know, for me, as someone who's 45, who's in middle school, when going off uh, first came out and, and, you know, that was just a game changer from the way they were using samples and, and him, you know, as a beatbox MC, DJ, producer, dancer, overall entertainer. Um, you know, one thing I didn't mention on the Sunday night sit down, I had the opportunity to go to the juice crew reunion in 2016 in New York. And, you know, G rap was there. Kane was there. Granddaddy. IU, Shantae, Sham, Molly Maul. Everybody was in the house, the entire Juice Crew All-Stars. And everybody I, I, I rolled with said, hands down, Biz Marquis stole the show. And, you know, you look, and G-Rap and Kane are definitely considered two of the ten best MCs, you know, of all time. You know, as dope as they were, you know, you know, as far as with the lyrics, you know, I don't know if anybody could beat Biz as far as rocking a crowd, you know, and rocking a party and just being, you know, entertained. If you ever saw his rendition of Elton John's uh, Benny and the Jets with the Beastie Boys, but no, he could just, even without the ability to sing, he's just his entertainment ability, um, you know, was just probably second to none, you know, as far as in the hip hop game. So, uh, and he'll obviously truly be missed. You've seen the, uh, the outpouring you know, from all over the world, murals are going up all over the world. A lot of artists from that era are coming out talking about how important he was, you know, to their development. So I just want to take a second, you know, before we get into um, tonight's conversation, we give a shout out um, to Bismarck, rest in peace. 
And, you know, and if you've got some time over this week, you know, go on YouTube, Spotify, whatever, and sit down and spend an hour of your time listening to Biz Markey going off. Um, that album is just absolutely crazy. And you'll hear all types of stuff that you wouldn't even believe that cats were doing, you know, musically back in the late 80s when I was back in middle school. So I'm going to pass it back um, to Miracle um, to introduce our first guest and kind of set the context of, you know, why are we talking about this issue tonight and, you know, what, you know, and what we kind of want to get out of this conversation with these two esteemed guests that we have for our conversation this evening. Um, yes. So this July, um, we are talking about community-based safety, community-based support. We had our Reimagining Public Safety release um, uh, report uh, a couple weeks ago. And so we're just delving d- deeper into these conversations because we understand that as our various cities grapple with um, defunding the police, combating mass incarceration, stopping gun violence, uh, restoring communities. There are a lot of questions and they're not necessarily easy answers, but we want to talk to people who have direct experience or on the ground doing work or engaging and doing the work uh, to keep our community safe. So we have uh, two people who are going to be joining us. The first um, is Ghani Kempasos, also known as Kempas Songster, um, who is an individual who works as, you know, a restorative justice coordinator in the Philadelphia area um, who came back you know, came home to Philadelphia with the edict to help engage restorative justice in the community. And so um, from YAS, one of our sister organizations in Philly, we welcome to the program, um, Ghani. Peace, peace. How's everybody doing tonight? Thank you for having me on. Uh, Miracle, Kari, Ryan, you know, the whole family. It's a blessing and an honor to be here, um, especially after, you know, Miracle. Um, I don't know how much you've shared on my my journey, but, you know, um, it's uh, if when I say that I appreciate being here, it's not just something to like to say. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Yeah, and just to I'll educate our audience and, and to not get into his details, uh, Ghani was a juvenile lifer who, due to the Supreme Court ruling, um, came home a, a few years ago and has really, really been working directly um, in the community. And so can you just talk a little bit about what YASP is and why you are so focused on this restorative justice concept? No doubt. So YASP is the Youth Art and Self-Empowerment Project, and it was originally founded to to um, to address, you know, Act 33. You know, Act 33 was um, was something that was implemented in the state. I think it was in 1996 that legalized the the certification, the automatic certification of young people as adults for various offenses. It used to be the case where, you know, it would took a, like a homicide, a first degree homicide. If a young person was arrested and charged for a homicide, they were automatically certified as an adult. And even that was, um, it was a discrepancy in that policy because the federal, according to federal law, you know, young people, even if they were arrested for a homicide, had to have a hearing, you know, that where the case would be made for them to be transferred to the adult system you know but now the way it, the way it is is if a child is uh, 
convicted, arrested for a homicide, they're automatically certified as an adult and they have to have a decertification hearing to get it transferred back to the juvenile system. That was just for homicide. But in 1996, you know, with the passing of Act 33, it widened the net with the amount of charges that a young person could receive and, and be automatically certified as an adult for. And so Yas wanted to like challenge that specifically because it, ever since Act 33, it increased the, um, the amount of children that was placed in jails, you know, and detentions for, um, for offenses that, you know, they shouldn't even been really charged, much less uh, put in detention for. And those, there's three cities that's predominantly do, um, impacted by Act 33. As you might imagine, that's Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and Harrisburg. And you probably guess why, you know, because, you know, those are the cities probably with the highest amount of um, brown and, 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 and black youth, you know. And so um, we said, you know what, we need to challenge this. You know, our young people do not need to be cuffed and caged and corralled. You know, they need healing. Right. Because our young people are navigating, you know, the maze of life, laboring under so many accumulated uh, traumas. Um, and that's never addressed by the current legal system. And, and that's one of the things that we uh, also sought to address, too, was, you know, was just the, the health of our young people. Our advocacy is not just to keep them out of prison, but to also, you know, advocate for their, for their optimal health. Right. We also started the first ever, before I forget, the first ever participatory defense hub. Youth, there are other participatory defense hubs in the nation, but youth participatory defense hubs in the country where young people who have been charged for certain offenses, they can come to our hub and learn how to advocate for themselves, how to exercise their own agency in the courtrooms. Right. And so, um, so yeah, we, we, our advocacy is specifically for young people. The majority of our staff is formally adjudicated and formally incarcerated youth. And recently, the most recent um, chamber we've kind of entered into our advocacy is with restorative justice diversion. And so um, I don't know if you know, I don't want to get too long winded because you probably got some other other answers. Uh, I mean, other questions that you need answered. So. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, you know, just breaking down what YASPA is, a lot of the work that y'all do. Um, you know, so as you mentioned, a big part of your focus was and is on Act 33. Um, which, you know, was, was introduced and passed um, at, at a time where the focus was on what's now the, the you know, the widely discredited tough on crime philosophy. Um, you know, you mentioned that, yes, um, you know, your work is much more rooted in that, that restorative justice philosophy. Um, so if you could just briefly explain, you know, what, what restorative justice is, what, you know, the, the practical application of that philosophy looks like, um, and, and why, you know, that your work at YASP is, is rooted in that specific approach to, to criminal justice. Sorry. Yeah, no, no. So, so certainly uh, restorative justice is a, is a term actually that we came, you know, we've been using in this country and places like New Zealand and different places since the seventies. And it's really just um, a name for something that indigenous folks. And when I say indigenous, you know, all over the world have been doing for millennia, you know, you know, people of color have been doing this, you know, and not just people of color, they've been also doing it in Ireland and places like this, you know what I'm saying, for, for, 
for thousands of years, you know, before the birth of, you know, what we know as prisons, you know, or the colonial justice system. And the, there are some key principles I'd, I'd like to just juxtapose, so like, you know, and, and compare with each other. So like the criminal legal system that we have today, it focuses on what law was broken, who broke it, what punishment is, is warranted. Restorative justice is about who was harmed, what do they need, and whose obligation is it to meet those needs, all right? We take it a step further. We know that um, the colonial justice system or the criminal legal system as we know it asks one overarching question. All of those questions that I just, those principles that I just lifted up fits under one overarching questions. What is wrong with you as the individual? You know, the, the principal asks the student, what is wrong with you? This is the umpteenth time you're in my office facing expulsion. The judge asks, what is wrong with you? This is the ultimate, this is the umpteenth time you're in my courtroom. Healing justice or restorative justice asks the question, what happened to you? You know what I'm saying? Especially, and that question is especially critical when we consider that our young people who are growing up in socially toxic environments, right, have been wading through so many accumulated traumas and, and, and harsh experiences that kind of like, you know, inform their thinking and inform their behaviors. You know, what we see in the behaviors of our young people is not the problem, it's their responses to the problem, right? And res restorative justice, you know, is, is, is operating with that understanding, right? Um, specifically with restorative justice diversion. They're doing restorative justice diversion in, in various counties around the country. They're doing it in Almeida County, Long Beach, California. Um, they're doing it in Miami, Durham, North Carolina, Nashville, Tennessee, and in Philadelphia is kind of like the newest, the newest spot that they're doing it in, right? And what it's going to entail in Philadelphia is the, dish, the, the charging unit, when they, when they um, apprehend a young person for an offense, they refer that person, they're young enough, they refer that person to the district attorney's office. The district attorney then refers them to our uh, restorative justice diversion program, which mind is called Healing Futures. Our program is called Healing Futures. When we receive that case uh, referral packet, we look over it, seeing if it's some if it's a case that we can accept, right? So, like a case we can't accept would be like if it's um, a shoplifting case, or because it has to be a person harmed, not not a corporation. It has to be a person harmed, and it can't be some like a police officer. You know what I'm saying? Because there's a power power dynamic there that's going to present pre present some kind of complication. So once it's a case that we can accept. We accept the case. We let the district attorney know, look, we're, we're going to accept this case into our program. We make a phone call to the young person and their caregiver, set up a meeting with them. We also send them a letter and a brochure informing them a about the program. Once we have that meeting with them, we explain the program to them. Um, hopefully get the young person to enroll in the program. Let them know that, look, we're not the cops. What we're trying to do is keep the cops out of this keep the courts out of this, keep the system out of this. This is an opportunity to divert you from being charged and also an opportunity for you to learn, you know, about the impacts of whatever 
of whatever you did or whatever, you know what I'm saying? Whatever harm was caused. Once they enroll in the program, we let, let the district attorney know, look, this, this young person enrolled, they hold off on any charges being, uh, being filed. Then we reach out to the person harmed. The person harmed, you know, we talk with them, they agree or don't agree to, to participate in the program. If they do, hopefully they do. Then we work over several weeks to bringing them together in a, a, a space, right? A community space, not a courtroom, nowhere, but maybe a church, a rec center, a library, anywhere that we choose. This is about what we choose. Specifically, the person harmed gets to determine this. The young person gets to bring their supporters. The person harmed gets to bring their supporters or those people who are impacted by the offense too or who love them and wants to be there to support them. And we come together in a circle. We have food there, refreshments, and we, we talk. The young person is given an opportunity to offer an apology, right? And explain what they were thinking at the time of the act and just share everything about that. The person who was harmed gets to talk about the impact of the offense on them, how it made them feel. Everybody there gets a chance to talk about how they were impacted by the, the, the incident and also what hopes they have for in the young person, right? That's about eight or nine weeks after we accept the case. Now, we don't, we don't leave the conference until we come up with a community agreement for this young person, a restorative plan for this young person, something that we all agree on for this young person, whether the person might want the young person to work at their business if they have a business for a certain amount of time, mow their lawn, do some community beautification. But it ain't. this is not about community service. This is about learning from account about accountability. So they might ask the person just to better their grades. They, they might not have any ideas. And that's why we have other community members there that might have resources. For instance, they might, might be people there that have a program doing vocational training. And so they might say, look, if you don't know what you want this young person to do, they can come over here and learn a trade if it's all right with you. Or they can get an education in STEM, you know, or they could work at my community garden or whatever the case may be. Or they might, get, you know, uh, do a stress and anger management program. And so once we come up with a community agreement, the young person, that, that takes about two months. That, that plan takes about two months for the person to fulfill we monitor the young person, we, the facilitators, we stay with the young person and see how they're coming along with the program. Meanwhile, we're sending word back to the district attorney every four weeks, letting them know, look, young person is doing fine. He's fulfilling the program or she's fulfilling the program. Once they're done, we let the district attorney's office know this young person has successfully completed the program. The district attorney then lets the charging unit know no charges are pursued, no record is entered into the person's uh, background, no criminal record or anything like that. And then after that is, is officiated, we have a community celebration. We're not celebrating what the community, uh, what the person did. We're not celebrating that they got away from being charged. We're celebrating what we as a community have the capacity to do when we work together, when we exercise our own agency, we celebrating that, that well, our capacity to arbitrate our own differences and work out our own trespasses against each other when we exercise our own agency without the system involved. That's what we celebrate. We celebrate hope for the young person and hope for the community after harm is done. 
Thank you for that. Um, my, my question, you know, is, 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 is to respond, you know, to those who, you know, have become, you know, uh, accustomed to, you know, what you call the, the colonial, you know, style, you know, system, the very punitive, you know, style uh, correctional system that we have, you know, in this country. And, you know, what would you say to those who may have, you know, some apprehensions or feel like, you know, um, the only way to bring justice is to have this very punitive style system. You know, you know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, we're somewhat, you know, contemporaries. And I, I know we both can go back to, you know, uh, you know, uh, three strikes and, you know, and the, the, uh, the politics of the 1980s where it was like lock them up and throw away the key. And there's still I feel like a lot of people, you know, still have, you know, carry on, you know, that point of view. Um, you know, toward crime and punishment. So, you know, so what do you say to those who feel like, you know, um, restorative justice, you know, somewhere falls short for those that want to have kind of that almost that vengeful sort of justice, you know, that, 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 that we came up on, you know, in the 80s and 90s? No doubt. No, thank you for that question too, Kari, because those are questions that do that do come our way. You know, we had um, a lot of forces, you know, that um, in the system, especially that didn't want to see this, this program, you know, gain anchorage, especially in a city like Philadelphia, which is, you know, one of the epicenters of tough on crime politics in the state, you know, as Pittsburgh is, you know, the whole state of Pennsylvania is a tough, it's been a tough on crime state, you know, and, and, and I think, you know, that the people that make that argument, you know, it's shocking that after all the evidence that's out there, you know, about the current mode of procedure and the mode of procedure that we've been on for the last 40, 50 years, you know, that they would still, you know, have the audacity or the courage to, to make a, to even pose a question like that. You know, here we are, you know, we have a, um, a restorative justice diversion process that has an 18.4% you know, recidivism rate over a 12-month period compared to a 32.1% recidivism rate over a 12-month 12-month period with the with the criminal legal system as we know it. You know, um, it costs about $4,500 to 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 move one young person through this restorative justice uh, justice diversion process. You know, roughly, you know, over the period of the program compared to 23,000 a year on average to keep a child on probation or $588 a day or $214,620 a year to keep a child in a jail cell. You dig what I'm saying? So people that's operating off that colonial mindset um, don't even have a leg to stand on. I mean, I, and you know, like I'm surprised we even, even entertain that perspective anymore. You know what I mean? With all the damage and decimation that, and I don't even want to call it, I don't even want to call it mass incarceration because we're not even talking about a mass. We're talking about human beings here. You know what I'm saying? We're not talking about some faceless masses of people. So I, you know, I, I prefer to call it, you know, human warehousing or mass human caging. We're talking about human beings here. The impact on human lives, on 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 our communities that the prison industrial complex has had and how it has, has ravaged us, that anybody still has the audacity to wave that flag, you know, against something like restorative justice that we have yet to even really give a chance, 
you know, let's try something different. Anything anything that we can imagine, no matter how outlandish it might sound, can not possibly hold any less promise than the way we've been dealing with it to this point. You know, not just the econ the, just the math that I that I offered, but just just on a human level. You know what I mean? So, you know, we're, I just I, I I just strongly believe that, you know, for for our young people. You know, it's it's uh, I'll, I'll, I'll put it to you like this. One victim's advocate uh, who 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 heads mothers in charge, Dr. Dorothy Johnson Spike. She has mothers in charge, a premier victims advocacy group. She sat down with me one day. She told me, she said, man, there is nothing that I would want to want less than to hear that the person who took my son's life is sitting in a jail cell doing nothing, right? I think that's a very important point to lift up because it is a falsehood that with the majority of people who've suffered harm, that's all they want is punishment. That's all they want is for the person that hurt them is to just sit in a jail cell and vegetate and generate millions of dollars for corporations and industries in the name of accountability. Accountability is not something that's passive right? Being punished is passive. Being rehabilitated is passive. You just got to sit there and let the state punish you and let the state rehabilitate you, right? And you don't never have to be remorseful. You don't never have to show contrition. You don't never have to be accountable. But accountability requires agency. Transformation requires agency. Redemption requires agency. It requires the person that have done the harm, right? Understanding the impact of the harm that they've done and wanting to be hands-on and bringing some type of balance back to the community that they've left in a state of imbalance, right? That is what restorative justice uh, offers. And, 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 just, and just one more thing too about restorative, I'm not married to the term restorative justice, by the way, I, I, I use it, I wear it as a title, I use it for lack of a more commonly used term, all right? But I know the limitations of restorative justice. I know restorative justice doesn't address trauma. It doesn't address addiction. It doesn't address poverty. It doesn't address racism and unemployment and lack of health care and, and, and mental health issues. And it doesn't address white supremacy and all of those things, right? Um, and I don't want us to allow uh, to, to, to use restorative justice as this new holistic way of fixing our children. That's not what this is for. Transformative justice is really a term that that I gravitate more to. I, it, it's something that uses restorative justice principles, but that's also about changing the conditions that's breeding the violent tendencies in our young people, right? Because restorative justice, what are we gonna be, if children are growing up in socially toxic environments and that's where the violence takes place, what are we restoring it to that uh, back to that? That's not what we're doing. And so, um, so yeah, so it's about transforming our conditions, teaching our young people to value their place in the community, right? And in their neighborhoods and teaching them about the impact of their harms. And this is something that the criminal legal system and its current mode of procedure, which is just a punishment uh, undeterminately and just without end, that's what, that's, that's what that conveys. And it has not worked in the best interest and in the health of our communities. Um, I thank you so much uh, uh, for your time. And as we wrap up, just two quick questions. One, um, how can people get in contact with you? And two, as you're, I know this is a newer program, but when we're talking, we're looking at resources, we're talking about community needs. 
what are some of the things that the, the youth that you're working with are asking for and telling you that they need that they don't have access to right now? Definitely. Uh, thank you for that. And so you can always reach out to YASP, you know, on, on our website, www.yaspproject.com, um, or just check us out on Facebook or Twitter, any one of our social media sites. And, you know, and I, we've just had four successful enrollments in our program, and all three of the persons harmed are interested in participating in the program. And one of the things that, you know, one common theme that I'm hearing, first from the persons harmed, the persons harmed don't want the young people to be jailed. They don't think that that is the answer to the problem. And I think that's that's very telling. There is a 91% satisfaction rate amongst the person harmed in all the restorative justice diversion programs around the country. And that's an insane statistic in a world where it's hard to get people to agree on anything 50% of the time. But from young people who are going through the program, one of the things that we're hearing from them is the lack of resources, you know, that they wish there were things for them to do, that they wish they were um, think somebody there to talk to them, you know, um, somebody that they could turn to and talk to, right? And somebody that understands them and just not condemns them and rejects them, understand their culture, understand what they have to deal with every day, right? Um, that's one of the things that I'm hearing from them all the time is um, they're looking for they're looking for care and 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 that's not what they're getting from the community. And I would probably just end with. You know, we hear the African proverb all the time, it takes a village to raise a child. And, you know, the truth of that is not worn out by how many times we say it. The truth of it is solid as ever. But there is another African proverb that we don't say enough. And that is when a child is not embraced by the village, he or she will burn it down to feel its warmth. And what we want to do with this program is create a space we want to use it as a thread to weave our community together, to circle our wagons around our children and around our whole community, to create an environment where our young people feel embraced and not rejected for their mistakes and for their bad behavior. Sure, we don't want to let them get away with it. We want to let them know, look, you got to see how your behavior is hurting people and how it's impacting your own family, yourself and others. But look, not because you made a mistake mean we don't love you, right? We want the best for you. Right. That's what they want and what they're not getting enough of. Arthur, I do appreciate you and I do thank you so much for um, joining us in this episode, the One Hit Power Hour. I know hopefully in the future we can come out to Philly um, and see this you know, program in person um, as you know, we do. Um, allow for youth to volunteer for their community service hours so they don't get um, charges, you know, with our, you know, it's one of the things our organizations do. And so we would love to like, you know, to come and see how your program works to see if we can um, do something similar to some in the school districts here. But thank you so much for joining us. We wish you all the best of luck and um, tell everyone at YASP we said hello. Thank you so much. Everybody be blessed. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And that was Kempis Songster uh, from YASP uh, in, in Philadelphia. Um, and, and again, he has a, 
just an incredible um, story to tell. Um, we share um, some of that background in the comments section so you can click on those links and learn more about the organization uh, that he is affiliated with as well as his own you know, personal story, which is just um, incredible, um, you know, looking into his background and how far that he's come. He's such an inspiration. So thank you again um, for joining us at uh, Back to Miracle to um, introduce our second and final guest for the evening. Um, yes, like you said, we are here, you know, trying to, you know, share information about what's going on. And locally, there are people who've been through the system, who've watched loved ones and family members and neighbors go through the system and are actually working to um, try to create restorative justice practices to try to get particularly our youth uh, um, involved in community and supported by community. And one of the individuals is uh, Terrell Williams, who is um, the education coordinator at the Allegheny County Office of uh, Children, Youth and Family Services. And, you know, was recently profiled about how, you know, they're from the Hill and they're really working primarily with foster youth to try to, you know, engage them, uplift them and encourage them and motivate them. And with that, we want to bring in Mr. Williams to talk about his work um, and ways that we can support local youth here in Allegheny County. Good evening. Good to see everybody. Happy to be here. Yeah, thank you so much um, um, for joining us. And you, I know you, you know, I guess, you know, the heavy hill hitters, you're always, you know, uh, talking about, you know, the Hill District. And I love the Hill District, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but can you just talk about how those experiences um, and growing up in the Hill led you to work um, at your current position with um, the Youth, Family and Children Services? Yeah, I mean, um, growing up, I'm, I'm from the same environment as, you know what I mean, most of the people that um, I deal with right now. You know, I grew up in the projects. I was raised in the projects. And from there, I went to a neighborhood in the hill where people in the projects laughed at my neighborhood or my street. You know what I mean? So um, I know about poverty. I know about um, just feeling like nobody can help you. So, you know, the older I got, God always blessed me with opportunities to do what I needed to do to succeed. Um, from middle school to high school to even college, you know what I mean? I was able to make something of myself and, you know, the struggle just made me realize like, man, I can't, I can't just go out, be successful and forget people that I came up with. Um, you know, my father, rest his soul. He always said that I was the type of guy that he would have listened to when he was a young knucklehead because I understand. So um, when I got to a place where I was able to have a little bit of power, I guess, you know what I mean? I wanted to use the power to kind of show like, yo, you can make something yourself. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter what comes against you. You know what I mean? Keep that, just keep that spirit strong and keep fighting. You know what I mean? And here I am right now and I'm able to reach back, lift people up and dust people off that have been knocked in the dirt. So, I mean, for the, for the most part, I try my hardest never to forget where I came from. And with that being said, um, the Hill District isn't what it used to be, but it's still a mindset. So, you could be from Homewood, Northview, Manchester, Compton, uh, Jersey, Philly. I feel like I have to understand you. We have to understand each other. And I just want to make sure that you're successful and that you're okay. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, you know, working working towards all that, you know, working towards those goals with the youth that you work with. Um, you know, what are, what are some of the services you offer uh, through that position at the Office of Children, Youth, and Families? 
you know, resources you connect them with, different things like that? Um, basically, I work with anybody from the age of 14 to 24. So as you know, that's a real broad age group. That's a whole lot of personalities, a whole lot of issues, a whole lot of craziness that you got to encounter. But um, pretty much my number one job is to make sure that they're productive and they're able to make the transition from a kid to a, a, an adult that can sustain some type of productive life. Um, example, if I have a kid on my caseload, which I have 100 kids on my caseload, um, if a kid needs a laptop to be able to log in to do schoolwork for college, I got to make sure I find a way to get that for them. Um, if I have a young person, even if it's something so basic as they don't have $20 to sign an application fee to play basketball, and that's the one thing that keeps them out of trouble, I try to find my way to pay for it um, to make sure that they're able to do that so they don't have to get into any issues. Um, really, it could go from dorm kits to housing uh, help or housing assistance, pointing them in the right direction for um, any type of even therapeutic help. You know, my job is to make sure anybody from 14 to 24 has what they need and there's no barriers to them being successful. Thank you for that. Um, you know, can you share, uh, you know, like, a, you know, a story of uh, a kind of just an example of, you know, why, um, you know, your work, you know, is so important. You know, working with young people like a young person whose story really stands out as a story you tell often as kind of an example of why this work is so important. Absolutely. Um, I always tell this story and I, I did this story particularly when I wanted to talk about um, the school to prison pipeline. I had a young man that was attending a local school and I won't I won't say the name of the school, but in a suburban part of the north side of Pittsburgh. This young man, literally my first week of working for CYF, um, he was in trouble. Apparently, um, that particular school wanted to kick him out and, and expel him. Um, what they're supposed to do for a young man, a young black man that has an IEP, they're supposed to do a best interest decision so he can have lawyer representation. He's supposed to have all types of people that support him and advocate for him. They wanted to get rid of him. Um, they wanted to actually let him go to jail at one point, too, because he got into an argument with a security guard that's also part of the Bellevue police. So if I didn't go up there, most likely he's going to get expelled. If he gets expelled, he doesn't have anybody that's going to be able to sign him up for school. Um, if he got kicked out, he was going to have to face one of the judges in Pittsburgh. The judge probably would have sent him to like a foster, not a foster home, but like a group home that was similar to jail. So on my first week, I had to go up to the school and I had to face a VP, um, a guidance counselor, and all of his special education teachers that are literally lining up to tell me everything he did wrong and telling me if I don't get him out of this school and place him in a better school or a different school, they were going to go through with the disciplinary measures. Um, obviously, I didn't have time to call anybody. I had to step up for him and I got him out of there and I transferred him from Westinghouse High School. Um, from Westinghouse, he went to Passport Academy and he graduated from Passport Academy, I believe, last summer. So I was able to help him be a productive young man. Um, he didn't need anything else but to get out of that environment, because unfortunately, when you're an inner city black man or young black man from the inner city and they throw you in a suburban school thinking that it's going to be, I guess, uh, a little easier for you to adapt. 
you're dealing with all type of forces that you really don't understand until you get under them. And people are, I don't know, I don't want to call it bullying, but suburban kids might not necessarily understand you. Plus you're a foster kid. So he just really, he needed mental health uh, resources, but nobody thinks of that. You know, they just want to discipline you. And if I didn't come through, I guess to represent them, they would have disciplined him. And we'd probably be talking about him being statistic in uh, in the juvenile justice system. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I know you uh, primarily work with uh, uh, foster children. Um, most of these, I'm are are going to be court mandated or community mandated. So. Um, situations. So how um, are you able to build trust and, and, and support? And you talked about, you know, having to do a lot of stuff kind of on your own. What resources um, are not really available right now that you believe these children need to help them be more successful um, in their future and their current environments? First of all, the toughest part, and I guess, like I said before, God blessed me with this ability but the trust factor is hard. Um, a lot of times you got to be transparent with kids. Um, a lot of times, you know, when I first started doing this type of work, you know, I tried to emulate the, the uptight teachers at school. You know what I mean? I tried to show them like I'm professional and I was pushing that line really, really hard. But I had to learn like it's not necessarily always about what you know up here. Sometimes it's about here. Um, you can sense that I care. A lot of times when I'm working on my caseload, it is court mandated, meaning something went wrong with the parent and the child and they somehow ended up in our system. So their trust factor is extremely low. Um, they're used to everybody telling them what to do. They're used to everybody talking above their head. They're used to everybody using the big words, fancy words, which I can also do. But I found that doesn't get me anywhere. If I had to really show them like, look, I didn't go to, I wasn't in foster care, but I'm a kid that grew up in pain. So I understand you're hurt. You know what I mean? We may not share the same hurt, but pain is pain. So if we can bond over pain, you know, I'm not going to subject you to more of that. Um, as far as resources, really at this point, uh, DHS, Department of Human Services and CYF, it feels like their resources are limitless. You know what I mean? There's so much we can do, but the problem is a lot of the youth don't know what's out there. And a lot of the problems that I have that I'm encountering is the relationship between us and particular the schools. A lot of schools aren't anxious to work with us because a lot of times they think CYF is coming in. Oh man, they're about to change the game on us. We can't do what we used to do. We're going to have to go a little harder for this kid. I don't want to do all that work. I mean, I deal with teachers all the time that don't necessarily like to see me, but they know what time it is if I'm coming in to see about my kid. Um, I've dealt with that before I was with, with CYF. I've been in other positions where it was a community thing. I've worked for the Kingsley. At one point, we had an education liaison program there as well. Um, really, doing this work, you start to learn, and I don't want to bully Pittsburgh public schools because everybody bullies them, but public school in general, a lot of what is needed is there in theory, but it's not necessarily getting done in practice. Um, I believe the brother earlier talked about restorative practice. Really, every school is supposed to be doing restorative practice. I don't know if you know that or not. 
Um, but in my time as working as an education liaison in all these years, I'll say I can probably count on my one hand how many times I've actually attended a restorative practice or restorative justice meeting. Um, it doesn't get done. So really where we're failing the youth, I hate to say it, is outside of the community and in the system. The school system right now is really struggling. Uh, the public system, public school system, particularly. Ryan, do you have a follow-up? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so, you, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, the school, you know, the school as a system really struggling, um, you know, so outside of just different, you know, resource or, or, or funding allocations, um, are there any specific, you know, systemic or policy changes, whether that be, you know, at the school board level, the countywide level, the statewide level, um, you know, that you'd like to see really to, to better meet the needs of this youth, whether that be, you know, with dismantling the school to prison pipeline mm -hmm. or, you know, producing like better long term outcome, uh, outcomes in, you know, any number of ways. Oh, man, I could talk about this for hours. Uh, let me start off micro level, man. If I, we look at micro level, we need more black male teachers in there, man. Um, that's one of the biggest problems. I presented that question before I asked everybody that I was hanging with one night. I was like, how many black man teachers, how many black male teachers can you name from your life? I'm only 40 and I can only think of one outside of the gym teachers and the basketball coaches and the football coaches that was there. Um, I don't know if people really know that representation matters. If you see a, a black man as a teacher, that does something for you. I mean, to some, that gives you a feeling of safety. To some, that gives you a feeling of this man can understand me. Even if he didn't grow up like you, at least you have the visual, the visualization of something that you pretty much feel safe and secure seeing. Um, on the mezzo level or the middle level, I mean, we really, really need to start looking more into how we recruit teachers and what are we doing with the teachers we have in the system. I'm not trying to beat them up, but... I've learned from this job that there's teachers sometimes that are kind of just kicking the can down the road until retirement. So what you have are you have a school system full of teachers that are just there that don't necessarily demonstrate the passion for their kid. So if they don't show the, the passion for their kid, they, I guarantee you they're not showing a relationship and they're not building a relationship with your kid. Um, really on a macro level, the next level, meaning like government, I don't know, man. We need to put more money into education. I don't think we're prior prioritizing education as much as we could. I'll say that maybe about the last administration. I won't talk about this one yet, but this is really something that has always been a problem, in my opinion, that I don't know if we really spend as much money in education as we do maybe in um, uh, the, the armed military forces. I don't know if we're even spending the money right because a lot of schools that we're dealing with in the inner city more money is going into policing the school maybe than innovating the school. If I go to Baldwin, if I go to Mount Lebo, if I go to Fox Chapel, man, their schools look like college campuses. If I go to a school in the inner city where taxes aren't necessarily being paid on the same level, if I go to a school in the inner city where there's a predominantly black or African-American um, neighborhood, I feel like I'm going to a cold jail or I'm going to juvenile hall you know what i mean so a lot of this is kind of it, it's it's all creating the long-term issues that we're kind of dealing with and like the brother said earlier um you're kind of pushing kids to the justice system when you don't push i don't know some type of love or attention or relationship with them 
Okay, thank you for that. Could you talk just a little bit about how the current setup for the system, you know, puts so much strain, you know, um, you know, on so many various institutions, you know, within this kind of ecosystem of the criminal justice system, as well as the youth serving organizations, you know, and the schools, at least from my perspective, it looks like, you know, in the, in the pursuit, you know, of public safety or in the pursuit of accountability, you know, it seems like, at least from my point of view, there's a, a heck of a lot of tax dollars, you know, that are just being, you know, flushed, you know, um, you know, through the system with very little to no return other than recidivism, and the criminalization of our youth. Absolutely. Um, that's the biggest problem that I'm trying to figure out myself when I go about my daily, you know what I mean, business with the kids in my caseload. You're right. A lot of money is going into the school system, but it's what is it going to? You know what I mean? And what are we getting out of it? Uh, one of the biggest reasons why I'll say youth are failing the money you're paying for the building more so than you're paying for the talent. Um, if we're going to put money into the system, hold somebody accountable other than the kids. I mean, we're already holding the kids accountable, but are we holding the principals accountable? Are we holding the teachers accountable? Are we paying the teachers right? To be honest with you, how are we recruiting our teachers? Are we just recruiting smart people? Are we recruiting people that are being professionally um, developed? You know what I mean? Is there development in our school system? Or are we just saying, here, here's a million dollars. Build this school. Um, I want my kid to have straight A's. You know, where where's the money going as we try to build up the school system? And that's where I'm trying to understand even now. Right now, I'm... Um, I'm finishing up my grad program in um, education at Carlo. So a lot of what I do is I'm trying to understand it from the education liaison perspective, my job. Um, a lot of times when I'm going into a school and I'm checking on my youth, I'm also trying to critique the school without coming out as a hypocrite of the system. And a lot of times as I'm watching talented teachers, I'm watching talented teachers that had their talent misdirected. Like I said, a lot of this, a lot of what we're doing with our money, we're not necessarily spending the money on building the relationship, which is going to be the reason why your child wants to do better in school. That's going to be the reason why your child wants to go to school. We're trying to build more curriculum than we are with the relationship between who's, the, who's pushing the curriculum. You and I know if you don't want to hear nothing that the teacher's talking about, you ain't going to listen. He could be giving you keys to being a billionaire. He could give you the keys to being the greatest. If you don't want to hear what he's talking about, you're not going to want to hear what he's talking about. And um, one of the biggest things that I, I learned, I was, um, I had to do a project. I believe it was on, um, I think it was on, uh, it was on a school in China. I think it was in, um, I can't remember, but I'm not going to keep that to mess up the point. They had the number one school in the world. China has the number one school in the world. And they gave them a list of why, like China gave a list of why they're the number one school. They said they're constantly trying to innovate. They're constantly trying to hold their teachers accountable. They're constantly looking for ways to develop their teachers and making them, uh, I guess, 
preserve relationships within the school. That's their secret. And they're still not satisfied. Whereas when you look at our school system, what are we putting all our money into? What do we care more about? And that's where we're going wrong. And like you said, if we can't get it right at the team level, all we're doing is just we're setting up our kids because they're not going to be able to out hustle the kids that live in like a Fox Chapel or live in a Mount Lebo or live in North Hills or none of that. Because, and this is something that's happening. I want to bring this up. I don't mean to like go all over the place on this one, but I really want to think about, I wanted to talk about this too. The pandemic, um, it came along and it knocked a lot of kids off of their square. So now they're going to school from home and they're trying to do all their work from a laptop. Schools in, in, in North Hills and schools in Mount Lebanon, schools in Fox Chapel have already been used to doing stuff like that. Moon, they're used to doing stuff like that. Montour. So now you got a little kid from Perry or Westinghouse and you just thrown them into an atmosphere that they're not used to. And we're going to pass that kid just because the pandemic is going to be the excuse for why they didn't do well. And then we're going to put them next to the kid that came out of Moon, Montour, North Hills, North Allegheny. And we're going to put them all in the same classroom in college. One of them was prepared for the pandemic, knows what they're doing, didn't miss a beat. The other one only made it by the skin of their teeth because the teacher just passed them. Now what happens when they one fails out of college, has to go back to the bad neighborhood he came from. The other one is going to keep going. So the one thing that I talked about with my professor, there's this is a paradigm shift for how we're dealing with our kids. Um, the education system, I don't know, we need we need to work more toward solutions that are beyond just through the curriculum and pass. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And as we wrap up, um, as you talk, same questions that kind of ended up with Connie. One, how do people get in contact with you? And um, is, has there been like a common theme of what the children are asking for? Is, is there some type of resource that's missing, some type of support that's, you know, missing? You're working particularly with um, foster, you know, children who may or may not be, um, reunited with their families. So mm -hmm. what are some of the needs that they are specifically asking for? A lot of them are looking for something to do. Um, the Occupy the Time, you know, for some reason, um, they're looking for camps, they're looking for tutors, they're looking for more resources toward one-on-one -on -one time. A lot of the kids I deal with, they're used to fighting for attention, you know what I mean? And then they're not even trustworthy of the attention they get. So they're, they need more resources in the maybe after school programs, maybe more mentoring programs. Um, a lot of the programs that we do have, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, you know, you're done by the time you're about 13, I think, you age out of that. So right now, a lot of them just really want mentorship and they want programs that they can just learn outside of schoolwork, like vocational programs, like cutting hair or like being a veterinarian or something so basic to us, but to them, that would be everything. Thank you so much uh, for joining us, Terrell Williams uh, from Allegheny County. Uh, thank you so much for your time and uh, and thank you for the work that you're doing. More importantly, the service um, that you're providing and definitely looking forward to having you back on soon. 
So thank you so much for joining us and good luck in your endeavors and stay in touch. So any way that we can be a resource for the work that you do, we look forward to do that as well. Thank you. Appreciate you y'all. Are great. Your, your contact. How do people contact you? Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, a couple of ways. You can catch me on Twitter um, at the K.A. Theologian. It stands for the cool ass theologian. <laughs> <laughs> you can catch me on Twitter, man. Um, uh, you can catch me on Facebook, or if you ever want to just have a conversation with me, I'm I'm available at terrell.ryan at gmail.com. Cool. Uh, thanks so much. We'll make sure we share that in the comment section. And again, thank you so much, Terrell Williams, for joining us today. Look thanks, forward sir. to talking to you soon. All right. Thanks, man. <laughs> right, take care. Bye-bye. Yep. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, and again, uh, you know, special thanks to a campus songster from the Youth Art and Self Empowerment Project, and again, uh, Terrell Williams, who was just joining us from the Allegheny County Office of Children, Youth, and Families uh, for today's uh, conversation about how restorative justice keeps communities safe. Um, and back to Miracle. Yes. So um, if you learned anything about what we just discussed today, or if you want to um, learn more about juvenile justice and the ways to help impacted youth, tomorrow at 2 p.m. on the One Hood Facebook and YouTube in partnership with uh, uh, Pittsburgh, Penn State, Greater Allegheny and the Game Project, we are doing a symposium Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday um, at 2 p.m. talking about um, what Pennsylvania needs to know about juvenile justice. And tomorrow I'll be heading up the juvenile um, justice portion of this conference for day two. So tune in tomorrow at 2 p.m. We are going to have a really great conversation. But, you know, as we have the symposium, our regular work continues. Wednesday at 6 p.m. we have This Week in White Supremacy. Thursday at 12 p.m., we're going to have, you know, on tilt because we have to protect our mental health. And we actually have a, a, a very special in-person event that's going to happen this Saturday at the Community um, Empowerment Association in Hobart from 12 to 10, um, pardon me, from 12 p.m. to 2 p.m. with Senator Sharif Street from Philadelphia, uh, uh, Representative Summer Lee from here in Allegheny County. I will be moderating. We'll also be joined by Tara Bradford from the ACLU and Richard Gardland from um, the University of Pittsburgh School of Social Work. And we're going to be talking about ways that we can combat gun violence and mass incarceration. So like we said, this whole entire month, we're talking about ways we can keep our communities safe, ways that we can invest in our communities and ways that we can highlight the resources that we need in our communities. And that's why we're having this conversation. Um, this will be live streamed as well as in person. If you are in person, we do ask that you do wear a mask um, so we can protect ourselves and our loved ones against um, this COVID-19 um, pandemic. And lastly, we just encourage everyone. We know people are burnt out. It's a lot going on in the world. Um, but we do have elections coming up. We have so many opportunities to elect a lot of great people in November. So please make sure you are registered to vote because um, we'll be start doing a lot of things. And um, we we'll make sure you join us by next week because we will have our website launched. So I'm going to turn it over to Kahari and Ryan, who will close us out for today. 
Yeah, just real quick before we go to Ryan. Um, again, as Mirko said this week, we uh, onehoodpower.com will be going up uh, most likely sometime tomorrow. Um, so we're very excited about that. So check us out, donate, find out more about the organization, check out past episodes of the Sunday Night Sit Down. Um, as well as the Power Hour. Make sure you join us uh, this Sunday at 7 uh, for our special sit-down with uh, State Representative Donna Bullock from Philadelphia, who was also the chair of the uh, Pennsylvania uh, Black Legislative Caucus. So, uh, yeah, we got a lot of stuff going on, and I'll uh, pass it over to my esteemed colleague, Ryan White, to close us out. Yeah, thanks for that, Kahari. Um, and then, you know, one one additional thing to to mention in addition to you know, all those, all those events going on this week, um, is that, you know, next Monday, again, continuing on with that same theme of community safety, um, you know, since it's the last Monday of the month, we'll be continuing our series of legislative visits. Um, so sticking with that theme of community safety, you know, we'll be joined, um, by, you know, a couple members of the Pennsylvania General Assembly, um, to really talk about, you know, from a statewide legislative perspective, um, you know, how we can, how we can best be advocating for that, community safety, um, you know, and, and combating issues that impact that safety, um, like mass incarceration, like community violence, all at the same time. Um, so yeah, join us, join us again next Monday, in addition to, you know, all the other great events we have coming up this week and next week as well. And with that, thank you all for joining us. Uh, please join us next Monday at 7 p.m. Uh, for our, our month, end of the month. Our, our, our end of the month uh, legislative sit down and join us this Sunday at 7 p.m. again for our Sunday night sit down with State Representative uh, Donna Bullock. And until this Sunday or next Monday, uh, stay safe, stay engaged in the process, stay involved. And like Miracle said, if you haven't registered yet, register to vote as soon as possible. Thank you for joining us. And for my esteemed colleagues, Miracle Jones and Ryan White, this is Kahari Mosley signing off. From Hood Power Hour. Thank you for joining us. Have a good night.